Thank you, Anne. I remember as a teenager walking onto the turf at the Sydney Cricket Ground. I was a member of a high school cricket team playing in a competition called the Davidson Shield and uh, we got knocked out at the semi-final stage. It was a statewide competition. The final was played on the SCG. Didn't get to play on the centre field but I just got to walk onto that turf. You know, it's quite a moment and uh, Adelaide Oval would have a very similar uh, resonance to it, a sense of history. You could describe it as a sacred turf. When we come across a passage like the Transfiguration, as a preacher I have a feeling that I'm treading into a sacred space and uh, I have a sense of trepidation that words are so inadequate to convey the awe, the wonder of what is before us. As we look at the uh, Transfiguration, we need to locate it into where we're going on our own journey as a church. We do follow the, uh, the common lectionary order, which is followed by Christians right around the world. Millions of uh, Christians and churches follow the same readings as we do. And we've uh, come from, we describe the nine o'clock position on that wheel, uh, through the season of Advent, of Christmas, and then a period um, which has the very uh, imaginative name in some lectionaries as Common Sundays, um, otherwise sometimes known as Epiphany, the Sundays that follow the manifestation of Jesus. So we've come through the, uh, the baptism of Jesus, the temptation, the gathering of the people, and in Matthew's Gospel we've, we've begun to go into the teaching of Jesus but now we reach a significant transition point. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. And it's not just thrown in out of the blue. We've got to fit it in somewhere across the church here. It's a significant transition into a new season. This coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And in our 10.30 service on Wednesday, we will be marking and remembering on uh, Ash Wednesday the commencement of the season of Lent, that following the journey of Jesus towards Jerusalem and all the events that culminated in the cross and the resurrection. As we follow that journey, it's good to realise that we are echoing or modelling the gospel account of Jesus' ministry in itself. And in Matthew's gospel, the account of the transfiguration brings particular uh, elements that help us to see just what a profound turning point this was in Jesus' own journey. As is my custom, as I start a theme, I look up different images of the transfiguration. And uh, it is one I imagine it's very challenging to try and convey anything like the different dimensions. Some of the classic romantic artists uh, like Raphael and Titian had dramatic paintings of the Transfiguration. There are some stained glass windows that have elements of it. In fact, our own one at St Matthew's is not Transfiguration. I think it's one of Jesus' ascension. But it does convey something of that greater heavenly glory. Rather like this one I saw, uh, which is in uh, St Peter the Apostle Church in New Jersey in the US. I think the more stylized version um, captures something about just how uh, profound this moment is. 
But as I looked around and I looked at various different pieces of art, my eye was caught to one by a Filipino artist. And I just go with my instincts. I don't try to overthink it. But my eye was drawn to it. And I think it was for two reasons. One is that it doesn't try to do too much by way of reflecting the the otherworldliness that no one has experienced, viewed this transfigured imagery. It defies our imagination of a sense of, oh yeah, I can picture just what that was like. We can't, because it is so exceptional. So it doesn't try to do too much other than to radiate that is drawing us into a realm that is we can just glimpse but can't really focus on. But the other reason I like this piece of art is that at the bottom... It has a very much a, an experience that I can relate to. It's well-grounded. It has that sense of, gosh, in terms of encountering, that would be just overwhelming. It would be, be more than we could, we could take, Peter, James, and John. I want to come back to those two images as we conclude a bit later. In Jesus' ministry, he brings a, a touch of heaven with wherever he went. Heaven is being in the presence of God. Jesus is the presence of God. But as he moved around into villages and towns and as he gathered in people's homes and in the street and the country areas, wherever Jesus went, whoever he encountered, he brought a touch of heaven with him. And lives were changed as a result. People were healed. They received teaching that was life-giving. It was enlightening. They could be uh, drawn back into a a sense of all that God has intended to be. Everywhere Jesus went, that touch of heaven brought change and transformation. And that is a foretaste of what is to come. So that bridging of heaven upon earth is what we see in the transfiguration. We see those two spheres brought together and we just glimpse what that can begin to look like. Again, I want to come back to this image of the bridging of the heavens behind the the realities of the clouds that we encounter. So we come to the way in which Matthew has located this story. And I want to use three lenses to view this account. First of all, I want to focus on how Matthew has woven it into his narrative. He actually follows Mark in doing so, but there are some characteristic features. It didn't just happen out of the blue. It happened at a significant turning point in Jesus' ministry. Then I want to look back at the the wider biblical canvas, and there's a couple of episodes to see that whenever God inaugurates a whole new work of salvation, there are these remarkable glimpses of heavenly glory when God is about to do something new. And then finally, I want to come back to how does it speak to us today? What is its message that we can hold on to? So that's what we're going to follow. First of all, how does Matthew shape it? If you've been following the the daily order of prayer for the past week according to the lectionary, it's taken us through the uh, Matthew's account of Jesus on the road to Caesarea Philippi. Most of Jesus' public ministry in Uh, The the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, occur up in the north in Galilee. And even beyond Galilee is a a town or city called Caesarea Philippi, which is the epitome of other empires. Caesarea, obviously named after the Roman Caesar, the emperor, the Kaiser. 
Philippi is named after the Greek culture, the Hellenism, the love of Greek philosophy and art form and others. So it was a city devoted to Roman and Greek culture. The wider area is, is known as Panea, which is where the, the, uh, the heavenly god Pan is said to exist. You know, the pipes of Pan. Well, that, it was renowned that Pan inhabited that area as well. And this is the territory that Jesus was moving into. And as they were journeying towards Caesarea Philippi, he spoke to his disciples as they journeyed and just threw out a question. So who do people say that I am? He's getting quite a following at this stage. And that was an easier question to answer. You know, some say you're John the Baptist, come back. Some say you're Elijah, who was to come again. And then Jesus gave them the really searching question. Who do you say that I am? In effect, Jesus is saying, you've followed me around, you've heard my teaching, you've seen who I am, you've seen the work that I've been doing. Have you put the pieces of the puzzle together? Who do you say that I am? And we all know the story. Peter puts his hand up and saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's commended. You can imagine the skip in Peter's step at that moment. Yes, I got it. And Jesus in Matthew's gospel, uniquely in Matthew, says, Peter, you are, you are my rock. And on you as my rock, I'm going to build my church. From Peter being up there in terms of the clouds and saying, this is incredible, things change dramatically. Because Jesus then says, yes, I am, in effect, the Messiah. And this is the work that I've come to do. And he stops in the road and starts, says, our journey's changing direction. I'm now heading to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, I'll be handed over, I'll be beaten, and I'll be killed. That would have caused a bit of a pause for thought. Peter took Jesus aside, full of the fact that he's actually got some good answers and he's, you know, he's got it sorted. And he rebuked Jesus, a very strong term. He says, Jesus, no. Let me give you some advice on what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to be like King David. He's supposed to gather an army. He's supposed to throw the foreign invaders out and we're going to have a great big empire. And Jesus, in the hearing of the disciples, looked at Peter. Get behind me, Satan. What you're saying is a human words, not the will of God. Now what was behind that is that, uh, remember in the temptation that Jesus had after his baptism and he went to the, the desert, one of the temptations before from Satan was to say to Jesus, there is an easier way. You don't have to do that journey to Jerusalem. You can avoid that. All you need to do is bow down and worship me and I'll give you the kingdom. That was the temptation. And Jesus was resolute in saying that the wishing of God, the, the true kingdom can only come by that work he would do in Jerusalem. That is why Jesus is so strong in recording that. And the accounts that we have in Mark's gospel and others have come through Peter's own eyes. Peter is owning that. So Jesus then turns and he looks at his disciples and says, you need to be aware that if you follow me, you too will need to take up your cross. For some who followed Jesus, they literally did that. 
they also died by execution amongst the, the apostles. But Jesus says, for those who follow me, it's not going to be just all blessings and onwards and upwards. It's going to be costly. It's going to be hard. There'll be times in which you'll be pushed because of my name, because of the work we've come to do into the realities of the world. And then Jesus raises the question, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Let's go back a track, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, this is the one I wasn't writing, sorry. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus is not saying, follow me and it's all, you're going to be immune from all, the, all that can go wrong and the toughness. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good it would, would it be for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? This is a moment of profound choice. Do we trust Jesus? Do we trust the promises he's making, the assurance he's giving? And Jesus says, for what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? But the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will, will reward each person according to what they have done. And then Matthew finishes with this one line. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now the phrase son of man, I just want you to note at this stage, Jesus' preferred name or title for himself didn't describe himself as Messiah. He didn't deny it. He said, yes, that's true. But when Jesus spoke of himself, he spoke of himself as the son of man. More about that in a minute. Now what is this moment that they're talking about coming in his kingdom? And there's been a whole lot of debating across the centuries and others of some possibilities. I think the most likely that this moment that Jesus is talking about is his resurrection. Because the resurrection inaugurated a whole new reign of the kingdoms in breaking in. I'll come back in a minute to show you why I think that's the case. And then Matthew's narrative then picks up. On their journey, you can imagine almost six days of the journey walking in a fair bit of quiet. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And then, just then appeared before him, Moses and Elijah, walk, talking with Jesus. Peter impulsively says, this is just amazing. This is wonderful. Let's strike up a camp. No, even better, I can put up some, some shelters for us so we can stay and love this moment. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You can imagine Jesus chuckle. <laughs> Thank you, Peter, but no. While he was speaking, a bright light covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, who am I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you see the connection of what has been happening? 
Jesus has said to his followers, this is what my mission is. And if I want you to follow me. But to follow me means trusting me with your life. Trusting me with your soul. And I will, you will be rewarded for it. You will receive the eternity. And that would have raised questions. Have we got this right about Jesus? But in this moment, in this vision, Peter, James and John, who then passes it on to the other apostles, and now we get to hear the same thing. Have God saying, yes, you have this right, you can trust this Jesus. He is the one to listen to, to dedicate ourselves to. So let's consider where we go with that. I can identify with this part of the story. When the disciples heard this, that is the voice from heaven, they fell face down, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And they looked up and saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. That's why I think the reference to this kingdom has come, the Son of Man. It comes, it's inaugurated, it commences through the resurrection of Jesus. So what are we to make of this? The characteristics is known as a Shekinah. It's the Greek word, it's the Hebrew word for um, glory, for a manifestation of something that is wondrous, that is awesome. And it was seen in the, uh, the tent of meeting that is close to the tabernacle as, Mo as they travelled through the, uh, the desert years in the Old Testament. Moses went and engaged with God in the Shekinah and his, came out with his face glowing so much that people said, it's too bright, cover it up. We also see it in the cloud of fire so that as they travelled through the wilderness years, remember how they were guided in their journey. Pillar of cloud, and a column of fire at night. When they arrived at Mount Sinai, these gathered together. So the account in Exodus 24, and you'll see the echoes here of how Jesus is described. When Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. Remember how Mark, sorry, Matthew highlighted it was after six days. The cloud covered the mountain. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. This is another of those moments where God is breaking into and just revealing, drawing back the veil around heaven. We can also remember Moses and Elijah, uh, representatives of the law and the prophet. Both of them had, un we don't quite know how they, what happened at the end of their life. Moses was taken up. We don't know the details of his death and burial. Elijah, we're told, was taken into a burning chariot. So that's why there was an expectation that he would come back, come back at some stage. Malachi 4, it's the, the last chapter of the last book of our Bible, and, and sorry, the Old Testament, as we have it shaped. And it says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah He's already come and done all his dramatic uh, confrontations with Ahab and so on. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. 
So in Moses and Elijah, we have representatives that this promise of God will be continuing. Matthew makes a lot of the, that uh, Jesus is the new and greater Moses. As Moses gathered the people on the mountain and gave them the, the, new, the, the, the commandments and the, uh, gathered together a, a nation of people who would be the, to be the people of God, Jesus is portrayed by Matthew as the new Moses as he gathered the people on the Sermon on the Mount and taught them the new commandments, taught them the, uh, the, the, the way, the greater way, the fuller way to live in righteousness. So Matthew is very much picturing that Jesus is part of this inaugurating a profound new stage in God's work of salvation. Another background we can find in the book of Daniel. book of Daniel in chapter 7, the, the veil of heaven is opened up. And what Daniel sees in his vision is recorded. As I looked, he said, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing, this is God himself, was as white as snow and the hair of his head was white like wool. And in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. That's the, the figure that Jesus points to. and says the closest figure to describe my mission is this one that's described in Daniel 7. One like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. So we have that vision very much as Daniel pictures it that radiance, that whiteness, that uh, awe that is drawn. And in that presence, the one like a son of man, according to Daniel, was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, that he is inaugurating. So where do we go with that? Well, we have a sense of being before a moment that is just so much bigger than we can comprehend. But we know we've been drawn into a profound, sacred moment. How is this a word of encouragement to the first hearers of Matthew's gospel who are beginning to face persecution and hardship in their following of Jesus. I love the picture that this glorious figure, this cosmic figure, reaches down and touches them on the shoulder. He says, don't be afraid, it's going to be all right. <laughs> Trust me. I think we still need to hear that ourselves today. And we have this heavenly voice, the voice of the Father, which is actually picking up Psalm 2, which is why we had the Psalm 2 reading. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Over and above all the other voices that are calling us in different directions. That continues to be a word of encouragement. Our faith, our trust that Jesus of all people is the one who we can hold on to. We live in a world just as threatened by armies and by empires and by catastrophic events that are fearful. 
and we realize our challenge is not to pick sides in that, but to, to recognize that God's kingdom will prevail as greater than that of, of any day and age of any human empire. This is the one that we're called to listen. So as we gather as a church, small groups, home groups, different activities we do in our worship, our calling is to enter into that space of heaven. Heaven upon earth, breaking in and making a difference. We're called to remind each other through our songs, through our readings, through our prayers, through our encouragement, through our ministry with each other, that God is present and at work amongst us. And our faith and our trust in his kingdom is well placed. And we should leave church having a sense of, I just touched heaven this morning. Because of God's presence, God's ministry through each and every one of us. May that be our prayer. May be that our commencement as we start the Lenten journey of the vision of the greater glory, ever calling us and beckoning us and saying, you are part of this. You are part of my people, my family. I'm going to finish with the words of a poem instead of an uh, interlude item. This is from an English poet called Malcolm Guite. It's called Transfiguration. I invite you just to have your eyes closed, perhaps, if you just listen to his words. For that one moment, in and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet, the daily veil that covers the sublime in darkling glass fell dazzled at his feet. There were no angels full of eyes and wings, just living glory, full of truth and grace. The love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. And to that light, the light in us leaped up. We felt it quicken somewhere deep within, a sudden blaze of long extinguished hope trembled and tingled through the tender skin. Nor can this blackened sky, this darkened scar, eclipse that glimpse of how things really are.